I am Will Davis, the full Lemmy. And I'm Leah Richards, a soup strainer. What does that have to do with anything scientific? You're going to have to wait till right at the end of the show to find out, because first of all, we've got some hot, hot goss from the science side of news to tell you all about. Their moustaches? More on that later. But first, we've been talking about fake news and science for a while over the last two years, and we have more research from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, looking at how to even detect fake news at its source before it gets into, well, all of the rest of the world and how everything's gone kind of sideways since 2016. They're focusing on sources of fake news because traditionally the fact-checking system works once the news is out there, You might go to Snopes, you might look around elsewhere to see if any information backs up this news article about vampire frogs that you've seen, but sites like that just can't keep up with the volume of fake news that's being produced, so why not see if you can teach a computer program to assess how likely it is that a source is sharing good quality information, just as you open it on a webpage, for example. So, looking at data from over 2,000 news sites, the support vector machine is the algorithm they've developed, that's programmed to go through sites and give them a accuracy score of high, low, or medium factuality. Apparently it's 65% accurate at detecting this factuality, roughly 70% accurate at detecting if it is left or right-leaning politically or central in the political scale. Some of the parameters it was programmed with in terms of detecting the language and content of a, quote, fake news article were looking for really hyperbolic, overblown language, something that was subjective, something that was emotionally driven as well. As for political bias, the concepts of harm and care and fairness and reciprocity apparently were the main metrics to judge things by. And honestly, if your politics aren't aligned with care and fairness, then, I mean, I think you have some more to interrogate about yourself, personally. That's just me. And they have also created a new open source dataset of more than a thousand news sources annotated with those factuality and bias scores. And they've also got plans to roll out an app that will help users step out of their political bubbles. There's a lot of talk about the echo chamber. Certainly I find it quite alarming to go out in the real world and talk to people and discover people have very different opinions because I tend to associate with people who share my views on the world because that's how one chooses friends. But as to whether people will make the judgement call based on the new information provided to them, whether they are doing good things or bad things, whether the world around them is doing good or bad things, or we should head over to North Carolina State University for their research into just how that decision is made with more AI judgement. What could go wrong? The aim is to understand how people make intuitive moral judgments and possibly then to be able to apply that information to an AI. I mean, I think it's a recurring theme in science fiction that the character who operates entirely on logic is super unrelatable to the squishier organic brains around them and that sometimes those logic-based choices aren't really the best decision. So... Being able to apply this to our AIs before we roll them out, let them run our lives, is probably an important thing to do. An important thing, but also a tricky thing. They give the example in the article of lying. Most people can agree that lying is immoral, but most people also agree that lying to Nazis about the location of Jewish families would be moral. So if you're trying to develop a model of judgement of what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, then these 
snap judgments of whether something is right or wrong fed into a computer are going to help build a hopefully more holistic and realized version like a human brain would. And who knows a human brain better than a group of 141 professional philosophers who were evaluating scenarios fed to 528 study participants and a second study group of 786 study participants. So looking at, first of all, low-stake scenarios, and then in the larger study, more severe situations which could result in injury or death if the quote-unquote wrong decision was made. I'm just, I'm stuck on the image of 141 professional philosophers. And obviously, many people's image of a philosopher is informed by pictures of your ancient Greeks, but I am imagining just so many beards and beige suits for some reason, but lots of beards. And a long queue for the finger sandwich table. <laughs> and obviously, someone has put that Monty Python song on in the background. So in the low stakes group, that first 520 so, the nature of the deed, as they phrase it, is the strongest factor into whether deciding something is right or wrong, a moral decision. Whether the agent was telling the truth mattered more than the outcome being good or bad because of the lack of consequence, really, or very low-stake consequence. However, when things get serious, the nature of the consequence is the strongest factor in deciding whether something is a moral or just decision to make. Like they say earlier, lying to save lives of citizens from their oppressors, probably a just decision. I think of the other example here of the survival of passengers on airplanes, the decision between a good and bad deed of maximizing survival or trying to find a good outcome. And lead author Velsko Dublevich says, For instance, the possibility of saving numerous lives seems to be able to justify less than savory actions, the use of violence or motivations for actions such as greed in certain conditions. The findings from the study show that philosophers and the general public made moral judgments in similar ways. This indicates the structure of moral intuition is the same regardless of whether one has training in ethics. So everyone can make these snap moral judgments in a similar way. And I don't know about you, but if I were to try and develop an AI to make ethical decisions, I still would want to give it the moral philosopher's perspective. I mean, yes, I think that's, that's the point. We want to know that artificial intelligences we're working with have some sympathy for the way we make decisions, at the very least. And now we've trained them on how we lie to each other and how we can justify lies, then hopefully whatever AIs rule the world in like 2072 or whenever will do it with an ethical and moral justness to themselves. But enough about the harsh realities of our robot overlords. Let's get down to the squishy personal biology of you and me and our listeners at home. All of us together. One great big collective us and what we can do. By contrast, with robot brains, this is one of those fun things where the language one uses affects the thoughts that are going on about it. Although actually I don't think they've thoroughly established the causal relationship here, but essentially, couples who frequently refer to themselves as a unit, as an us or a we, so possibly even in that contentious example of the non-pregnant part of a couple announcing, we're having a baby! Referring to yourselves as a unit is an indicator of a healthy interdependence. An absolute unit. The study participants, numbering nearly 5,500 in total, were assessed in their couples on five measures of their relationship outcomes for satisfaction or length of togetherness, 
relationship behaviours, if there were positive or negative interactions that were observed, their overall mental health, their physical health, and health behaviours, how well participants take care of themselves and each other. Now I'm interested to see with mental and physical health if they've just left out people with underlying conditions or if they've controlled for that. Because, I mean, I'm no less depressed for being in a happy relationship than I was before I was in the happy relationship, but it's also not made it worse. Thanks? <laughs> you know what's going on with my brain, you don't need to take offence. But it would be sad to suggest that a relationship is less good because one or other partner has a chronic health condition. Overall, though, they do find that those who say us and we and have this team mentality are happier and healthier. And Alexander Karen, a graduate student in the lab that conducted this study, does ask whether this is a chicken or egg question. If being a happy couple means there's more of this we talk, as they term it, or if having more us and we and a togetherness-centred description of themselves makes for the happy couple. Ultimately, he says, hearing yourself or a partner say these words could shift individuals' ways of thinking to be more interdependent and lead to a healthier relationship as a result. But it could also be the case that because the relationship is healthy and interdependent, the partners are being supportive and using we talk. I find it difficult to imagine... You know, being in a relationship where you have some shared finances, where you live together, where you're making plans for the future, where you wouldn't use the we talk because you're a team. That's the point. I mean, I don't know. We see stuff all the time about how straight people aren't okay, so that might be... this. I might have a skewed perspective on this <laughs> as a non-heterosexual in a happy relationship. <laughs> As another non-heterosexual in a happy relationship, and this is possible, but from 5,300 participants, that's, that's an okay-sized study group to make some broadly sweeping judgments. Oh yeah, no, I just mean I find it difficult to understand why one would be in the situation where you're in a relationship, sharing plans, sharing space, and not automatically start using that language. The fact that there's a variation in the amount of we talk that people are doing is, is kind of odd. I kind of want to be really nosy and dig into all of their data and see if they had, I know, counselling available. If they could take someone aside and say, now you've invested really heavily in this relationship. We can tell we've got the numbers, but your partner over there, maybe flaky. You might want to reevaluate some stuff. I would really hope they wouldn't have got ethics approval if they hadn't. <laughs> like. If I was looking at the, you know, can we get ethics approval for this study? And I went, uh, so if you can see that something's definitely wrong and have you got something in place to deal with that? And they went, no, I'd be like, get it. While we're talking about influencing one's squishy brain. You know, what's something lots of people really want to achieve. Something that governments often really want to push in their population. That whole entrepreneurship thing, that whole... I'm going to set up my own business and I'm going to be really successful. Do you reckon that's something inbuilt, or...? It's something that a lot of people seem to think they have in and of themselves. If the last couple of seasons of The Apprentice have taught us anything, it's that people going in with a lot of confidence and surety in who they are and what they can deliver. I mean, they've got that idea in and of themselves, despite all evidence to the contrary. You haven't watched the last 
I don't think you've ever watched a whole series of The Apprentice because you can't cope with how awful so many of them are. My point exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But the University of Texas at Austin has done some research and are of the opinion that you can teach somebody to be a successful business person. In fact, a genius business person. Good. You wouldn't want to think that all the people who have made it in this world just had something that they can't share. Like, oh, these people are just rich by chance. Rich by genetic dint. Yeah, I know there's differing opinions on that, but I think a lot of athletes don't want it to be thought that they just had a genetic advantage. They want it to be acknowledged that they've worked really, really hard to reach the pinnacle of their sport. And the same goes for you know, any skill. Someone goes, oh, you're really good at drawing, and you're like, thanks, I do it all the time. I've been working on it for a long time. And it turns out that that sense for what's going to be your next big idea is also something you can learn. And the research in a paper published in Advances in Strategic Management, which seems like the place to publish this review of management strategy, identifies that anticipatory thinking analogical reasoning, and design thinking are all techniques that can catalyse strategic imagination. Or at least that's according to Louise Martins, director of the Herb Kelleher Centre for Entrepreneurship. And he makes a point of noting that the future-focused, the innovation aspect of this is crucial and, again, is something you can be taught. You know, if a Whole Foods market was just another small grocery store, it would not have had the impact, but the new idea of combining lots of organic farmers with a big chain is where the difference has been made. Imagine if Amazon still only did books. But the example they give here of a company called Rent the Runway, which began offering rental clothing instead of buying it outright, creating what they describe as the Netflix for high-end addresses. And it's kind of just seeing an opportunity, seeing an analogue in a different business and translating that. So, people like Elon Musk, who made his billions out of eBay. It was an auction site, but online. And PayPal was banking, but online. Amazon was a bookstore, but online. And then once you've got all of the delivery infrastructure, you can start doing other things, but online and selling through that way. So saying that Well, people rent films that they wouldn't want to pay the whole money to see. What else do they want to pay the whole money to have? Um, Fancy clothes. How about this Rent the Runway thing? When you're choosing what to wear for a big event, like a wedding or prom or whatever, it's not necessarily the done thing to repeat outfits. And a really good designer dress can set you back thousands. So why not pay instead a few hundred pounds to borrow it for the evening and then it goes back in somebody else's cupboard and you can rent something different and up to the minute every single time. When you're going on holiday, maybe you don't want to stay in the same kind of hotel, maybe you'd like to stay in someone's apartment because it'll be a little bit cheaper. Next thing you know, Airbnb is letting people rent a room to you and then letting you rent out entire floors in apartments and apartment buildings are kicking out their long-term tenants to make more Airbnb space because they can charge more per night. Awkward. You want to get a taxi? How about a taxi on demand where you can see where it's going? That seems like a neat idea, right? Now these guys are designing flying cars, apparently. So yeah, these big business genius leaps can be taught. The 
thinking structures, the ways of perceiving the world and your place and your next steps in it can be encouraged and communicated. And whether or not you're making a good business decision, well, that's coming back to the morality from before. So I'll just have to leave you with your own thoughts on that. While we're on the subject of what you can be taught, decision-making also falls into this category, which is good to know for the robots. Also for the people? I mean, yeah. But we've been talking about robots. And people. And business and stuff. And robots. So assistant professor Hyun-Chil Bryant Kim published a paper in science with the rest of his team from Cornell University, finding that education can be leveraged to help enhance an individual's economic decision-making quality or economic rationality. Which I think is just teaching them economics. And knowing that that education in economics has a real-life impact, which is nice. It's not just how to balance a checkbook, which I don't think even I was taught back in 1990-whenever. I'm not sure we have to do that in the UK. I literally only ever see Americans talking about balancing checkbooks. Mm, and taxes. We don't have to do taxes every year. Unless we're self-employed, but even then, it's well, it's so much easier to just get an accountant to do it. But we are not 3,000 female ninth and 10th graders in Malawi. We're very... we're... I mean... I have very little in common with any part of that sentence. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you are almost exactly the opposite of that. You could only be more opposite if you were in, like... What's opposite Malawi on a globe? I think it's the North Pacific, so... <laughs> yeah, the antipode of Malawi is just off the coast of Hawaii. Yeah, so go to Hawaii and you can be... The most opposite. As opposite female ninth and 10th graders in Malawi as you possibly can be. Now, one of the reasons for studying this is that traditional economic analysis assumes humans make rational choices, but more and more evidence is mounting up to show that people tend to make systematic errors in judgment, and that there's a high level of diversity in how rational an individual might be. So, by focusing your government policy on educating people in how to make sensible, rational decisions, you can really help along lots of people. Was the mounting evidence for irrationality in economic decisions just pointing out of a window at the rest of the world and going, ah? I mean, some of it might be, but scientists like to go and collect the numbers, because then when somebody goes, uh, confirmation bias, you can go, no, look at my numbers. Look at them. Ultimately, though, Kim says, education can better equip people for high-quality decision-making in their lives, and governments must never neglect investments in human capital of their citizens. Noting that Malawi is ranked one of the lowest in the world for human capital. So, governments, invest in your people. The robots aren't here to save you yet. And based on the moral judgments that you're making, I'm not sure they're gonna save you specifically. Oh, I love that idea. We, like, launch AIs, and they just wander into the Houses of Parliament or something, and... Just look at Boris Johnson and thumbs down immediately. <laughs> Just literally fling him out of the window into the Thames. So Goodbye, they're not, Boris. They're not destroying anything. They're not like consuming matter in a kind of grey goo way. They're just a floating cloud of spores which goes. Rah, rah. I mean, I was I was thinking like a straight up android who has thumbs, but <laughs> only yeah, thumbs. sure, a cloud of a cloud of nanobots that forms itself into a. A downward pointing thumb is also good. And then they sweep Boris Johnson up and throw him out of the window into the Thames. That would be the dream. It's, it's genuinely like brought quite a lot of joy to my cold little heart. <laughs>
Speaking of dreams, let's round off all of our education for today, maybe some of your education as well, with a quick study from the Ruhr University Bochum and the University of Bonn, which have deepened our understanding of how brains learn, and you might have heard this before, but it's important that you get your sleep. And I know I've been hearing for the longest time that dreams and sleeping is how your brain consolidates the day's activity and the day's learning into pathways and makes memories out of them. And we're not entirely sure about the dreams part, that's still a bit... That's yeah. still, that's still pretty well hypothetical, it's very difficult to study. But, especially as far as the learning comes in, if you have some sleep in between learning a thing and applying the thing, then all the better. In this study, led by Drs. Hui Zhang and Professor Nikolai Axmacher, great name. Fantastic. It's reported in the journal Nature Communications, where they set some people some tasks. Test participants were given a series of pictures to memorise, and then had a nap. Looking at the picture, the activity in their brain shows a pattern that differed somewhat from picture to picture. The researchers were able to measure the differences in high-frequency activity fluctuations, the gamma-band activity of brain stuff, which, again, great name, and find that not only during the learning task, but also sleep, these same activities, the same brain flashes are happening, those connections are being made. And then, when you test people later to find out if you could remember the image, see if there's anything different about it, then off those signals fly. So this image-specific gamma band activity appeared during the learning task and during the sleep, to the point where the researchers could actually match up which images were being recalled during sleep. And that in itself didn't guarantee that you were going to remember the image for the later task. But activation in the hippocampus was a pretty good indicator. And let's not gloss over the fact that we've just said that people could identify what image was being recalled in a brain while you were sleeping. It's so wild, right? That is some sci-fi ass b We're so close to being able to record and watch back our dreams. I'm not sure I want that. I mean, I'm interested... You know that thing where someone appears in your dream, and when you think about it later, you're like, they don't actually look like themselves, they look like an entirely different person, but you just know who it is? So you might be like, oh, I had a dream and Brian from work was in it, and the face that Brian from work in your dream was wearing was like, that guy off the news, but you knew it was Brian from work. I'm wondering how far we've got to go before we can record that sensation. You have just identified the plot of like the next three horror films that I'm going to try and write. Because that is spooky as hell. Do you, not, do you not have that? Where someone appears in your dream and they've got somebody else's face, but you know who they are? I've got it, but I have the feeling that as soon as I go looking through recorded information in my brain, I'm going to have a ghost curse. Do you not see the ghost curse coming out of this? No, it's just brain Either I've watched too many horror movies or you've not watched enough, but brain I mean, I've, I've watched exactly enough horror movies to know that I shouldn't watch horror movies, so maybe that is the difference. Because spooky brain stuff and dreams and science absolutely ends up with a ghost curse. Cool. But let's focus on the positive aspects here of, if you're out there and you need to learn something, have a nap. If you're a student listening to this, try to get some rest before you do the big exam or the essay or something. All-nighters might be needed sometimes, but rest will get you a little bit further. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you're 
teachers don't recommend that actually the night before the exam you maybe do like a single last look over your notes and then go to sleep they're not taking good care of you so there's your takeaway lesson for today sleep on it and now we get to the real meat of today's news the crux of the stories that we've been building up to this whole time you know you remember how at the top of the episode we were mustaches uh, this is research sent to us via Dr. Margaret Harris on Twitter, so thank you for that. Simon Fraser University study busts myth about facial hair on pilots. Until last year, Air Canada and several other airlines required pilots to be clean-shaven, with the reasoning that in the case of an in-flight emergency, you can't achieve a proper seal on your oral nasal face mask if there's hair in the way. But it turns out, you can do whatever you want with your facial topery. And this comes back to a conversation I had getting onto a plane three or four months ago, in which the pilot was waving us all on, said to me, oh, nice beard, because I have a quite nice beard. <laughs> Not to toot his own horn or anything. And he said, oh, no, we can't grow them because of the face masks, we won't be able to get our oxygen. And I looked at him and said, you mean my oxygen's not going to work over my beard? And he kind of faltered for a second and went, I... We have a different mask? Yeah, I think they do. It's not quite as reassuring as you want it to be. Which for those five seconds of, oh yeah, no, no, if you've got a beard, the uh, oxygen supply to your chair won't work and you'll die horribly in a crashing airplane. Hey, hypoxia is quite a nice way to go. It's fine. I'd, it's rather, I'd rather not go. All things considered, thanks. I've yeah, got, but if you have to. I've got stuff to do. <laughs> I've got that as the delivery coming later in the week. I've got to be in to sign for that. But anyway, pilots of the world, let your facial fuzz fly. So we've heard about artificial intelligences which can tell when we're making fake news stories and lying to ourselves and lying to each other, whether those lies are for good or for bad. That, really, for most things, you can be taught. So we've got just enough time to leave you with these last few quick stories which I think unite the idea of brain stuff and learning with marketing. From Imperial College London, Tobacco display ban linked to fewer children buying cigarettes in shops. Because, you know, advertising works, so if you can't see the advertising, it can't work. Compared to, digital marketing exposure increases energy drink usage among young adults. Because advertising works! Speaking of advertising, if you'd like to hear more from us, then you can find us at EurekaNerd.com, at EurekaNerdCast on Twitter, and send any thoughts and feelings and weird brain stuff that you've got to EurekaNerdCast at gmail.com. I'm loving the idea of people just emailing us with vague dread or unexpected joy. At EurekaNerdCast at gmail.com If you want to help more people find the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave rates and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. Or just tell your friends. And if you especially like what we do, then you can donate to us to help keep everything ticking over neatly on our business side of things at ko-fi.com forward slash EurekaNerd. Anything you are able to contribute through that just helps us defray the costs associated with running a podcast and producing all this good, good content for you. But until next time, stay tuned where we'll be back with some spooky Halloween science play. <laughs> but until next time, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me.